Hello, fuck demons. I am your queen and welcome to Sex News with Ray. I'm your host, Ray, as usual, same person. And I'm here today with Steve Dean. Steve Dean is a New York-based dating industry consultant and relationship coach who has been helping online daters as well as dating app founders to navigate the dating ecosystem for the last 10 years. Steve has personally used over 250 dating apps across 25 cities, and he now spends his time hosting the Date Working Podcast, launching experimental events, and creating wayfinding guides for how to choose dating apps, construct profiles, send messages, craft dates, and design relationships. You can find Steve at dateworking.com, but you can also find him here today with us. Steve, say hello. Hi, Ray. What's it like having one of the most common names in all of the world of North American English-speaking world? Um, it's really frustrating because sometimes I introduce myself as Steve Dean and people are like, okay, Dean. Uh, it doesn't help also that I have a middle name of Michael, which really does not narrow down the field. It's just three first names in a row, essentially. The whitest name in the world. Oh, no. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Uh, so today in Sex News, we're discussing the article, How 1970s VCR Dating Paved the Way for Tinder and Hinge. It's from Vox, February 9th, 2021, and it opens in 1976 with the company called Great Expectations, a videotape dating service. How it worked? Prospective members get information on how it all works and are screened for membership. They join and write a one-page profile with likes and dislikes, values, what they're looking for. The profile is then reviewed. The member gets a professional photo session, and they record a video interview. Members review other profiles, watch the dating videos, and decide who they want to meet. And then the selected member will determine if they also want to meet, and then they would go on a date. And, you know... The founders did a few things, which was they helped people record their videos. It wasn't just self-recorded tapes, and they would try and get the people to laugh and have a normal conversation. They described it as it's more like a second date because you've already gone over all the first date questions and you feel somewhat familiar with this person. And the video helps you get a sense of the personality. And then a few quotes from the article. Video dating arrived thanks to the convergence of two separate trends. On one hand, these services sprang up right as VCR technology was entering the mainstream, which meant that making and sharing videos was easier than ever. At the same time, the cultural revolutions of the 1960s had cleared the way for a new openness to relationships and dating. At one point in the early 1990s, Great Expectations had 49 franchises and was earning $65 million a year in revenue. But Great Expectations never escaped the stereotype that people who signed up for video dating were inherently desperate. And then another unrelated quote from later in the article. But the people who dated with great expectations also risked a level of awkwardness that modern dating app users are spared. After all, to browse matches, people had to show up in person to the great expectations offices. And running into an unrequited match or a former date was not uncommon. And the last sort of thing from the article is new dating apps allow people to record small videos of themselves to allow people to better get to know them beyond a picture and a witty caption. New app Lolly is being pitched like TikTok meets Tinder. So that's the summary. Any questions, Steve? Hmm. I, th I think the thing that I appreciate most about the article and about video dating is how hard it can be even now for people to still record videos. And yet the original creators of the service fully recognize that. Like if you put someone in a room with just a camera facing them, they will be an awkward shell of a human for the most part. I'd say the vast majority of people, except maybe like the uh, the TikToker generation who somehow grew up with the ability to do video without feeling horrible about themselves. Uh, but having the extra person in the room is absolutely key because it makes it feel more like a natural conversation. And this has even happened for me when I've been trying to start my own like video content for helping people with dating. Like I cannot for the life of me hold up a phone and just start talking 
uh, you'll see that on almost any property I've ever managed or run, like there's no video of me just doing that because I am terrible at it. And one of my favorite videos was one in which my friend literally just held up a camera and started asking me questions. And suddenly the conversation flowed. I could answer anything. But doing that first video yourself when you're holding the camera or even putting it like, set up in front of you, it's just so nerve wracking for so many people. And in part, that's why it's been so hard for video dating to take off uh, at the app level, because people just, they can barely take a selfie, let alone do a multi-minute recording of them pontificating on something interesting or telling more in-depth information about themselves. So yeah, it, it's it's kind of trippy that it got its start in such an effective way, but then it took us another, it took us 30 to 50 years to actually get to a point where we could reliably do it uh, within our apps. And even it's questionable if we can actually do it reliably now. One of the things I like about TikTok in terms of, you said like it's like TikTok and people can just hold up a phone and and start talking. A lot of that's scripted. A lot of the people who are really funny with certain inflection, like they practice it scripted, they're doing it over and over. It just looks flawless. And then you have the people who just hold up a phone and say a dumb rhyme and it's poor quality. And one of the nice things about TikTok is you're like, ah, this person's funny and it's not. But even that sometimes, like people are pre-thinking what they're going to say. They're not just holding up a phone and talking. And I think maybe for for dating apps in general, people think they're just going to take a selfie right here, or hold up the phone and start talking and it'll be fine and someone will fall in love with them. And then you see, by comparison, a lot of other people who, you know, craft their profiles, carefully select their photos. Well, maybe let's take a step back. You're a dating coach. What does a dating coach actually do? Uh, let's see. So... I guess the starting point for me is, or at, at the highest level, I'm trying to help someone get from point A to point Z and to understand that there may be a lot of interstitial steps between where they're starting and where they'd like to be. So a lot of people come to me saying, like, I'd like to be in a long-term committed relationship, ideally with kids. Other people say, I'd like to just date more. You know, I'm out of a long-term relationship and I just want to understand, like, who on earth am I now after 10 years of a marriage? Um some people who just hate dating apps, they've been using them and getting no matches or no messages or no dates. Uh, they come and say, like, what's going wrong? I need some diagnostics help to understand like where the flaws in my own approach are. And so in each of these cases, I meet someone where they are. I find out, you know, what, what is I put on my diagnostician hat. I feel like house sometimes, Dr. House. Uh, and I try to investigate their life a little bit. I try to see, like, what are your profiles look like if you have any um, what's the way you show up on our video calls that we'll do together? And ultimately, like, what is it that you actually want? And do you really want that? Is, is that, in fact, the thing that you want me to help you build a, an entire process or a system to uh, bring into your life? And then sometimes people renege on that pretty quickly. They'll think like, oh, I really want a serious committed relationship. And then they go on one hookup app and they're like, actually, I kind of like that. That was great. Um, but then at a more systematic level, I meet people weekly and find out through each week, uh, we get a little step, like one step closer each time to the thing that they want. So it usually starts off with like a, let's find out who you are, uh, who your ideal person or people or relationship might be. Um, how do we find out whether that's something you can get online or offline or both? Sometimes you need you know, like a multi-pronged approach because the cool beauty of online dating is that it works while you're sleeping. And the algorithms do a lot of the heavy lifting so you don't have to. And they do a lot of the background checking and research to make sure you don't have to. Um, versus offline where like you get, I guess, more naturalistic interactions, warmer referrals from friends. Uh, you can meet in scenarios that don't require you even looking at a screen, which is kind of great. Uh, 
But then after that, once we have decided those things, it's it can be like if we're going the online route, it's a matter of designing and crafting a profile that's going to appeal to the one, maybe two people out of the millions who might end up seeing it. Like you really don't want a million messages in your inbox. You want you know one or two from people that you actually care about. Um, and then learning how to message back or how to send first messages, uh, even deciding what app to use because there are you know over a thousand dating apps to deal with. So picking the right one or maybe two or three, depending on what you're looking for. It could be like one for Friday nights versus the one that's like the Tuesday morning app. Um, so like something more serious, something more sexy, and there's a different app for every different need you might have. So you're helping people wade through the bullshit. The, <laughs> Simply the put, over, yes. <laughs> the, the over, yeah, the overwhelming information overload that people frequently complain about when they're on dating apps. Yeah, and it's sometimes their own internal bullshit too. I think it's important to remember that because a lot of people, like I can look at them and be like, at the surface, you're attractive, you're well off, you're in a position where like you're highly dateable. And yet there's bullshit in your head right now. Like you have so many stories you're telling yourself where like you send a message and someone doesn't reply in five minutes and then you get insecure. And it's like, are you kidding me? We, we really need to work on that first because you have to first understand almost like the logistics of the internet where like just because you send a message doesn't mean someone's reading that message. Doesn't even mean the dating app will deliver it to them until they've seen you in their queue and then been able to read it if they had time that week or that month, if they didn't delete their account within the same week that you sent the message. And so there's just a lot that people don't see on the back end that like I've had the privilege of seeing because I've worked with these companies or even tried to design my own dating apps at various times. Uh, so like I, I can give people a lot of the, not insider information, but just like information that it takes potentially months or years to ultimately grok and sort through. Uh, and I, I just clear that hurdle for people so that they can very quickly start making you know, inroads in to the future of the people that they want rather than having to deal with every single hurdle that the internet will send you. I know that there's a lot of running tropes like man with fish or guys who don't know how to take photos of themselves and it's double chin and then you meet them in real life and you're like, this person's very attractive. Why are their photos so awful? Or the guy who puts absolutely nothing on his profile and all of his photos are him with friends. What are common things? Is there anything common that you've seen that many people do? Or is it very unique to each individual that, that is acting as a barrier to getting dates? Um, it's I, I would say that across age and gender lines, like pretty much across the board, most people don't have the cleanest idea of A, who they are and what they represent. Uh, be how to display that in the whopping 450 characters you might get on an average dating app if you're lucky. Um, so you'll see, like most people will resort to, let, let's say Hinge, for instance, it's one of the, you know, like the darling of the dating industry right now. Um, they give you 450 characters divided across three prompts. And that's really not that much. That's essentially like three half-formed thoughts <laughs> in, in to like capture the essence of you as a person and how you're going to be as a partner for the rest of your life. Uh, so the average person, regardless of any other variables that I've seen, will simply use like at best, even like a hundred of those characters. So it'll be like, this is me in the wild will be like their caption for a, a photo and it's just a selfie, or it'll be uh, a prompt that says like what I'm, uh, what I spend a lot of time thinking about and they'll just say books or the ocean. And it's like, okay, cool. But like you, you, you had what, what kind of books? What do you mean? The ocean? Are you an oceanographer or do you like to surf? 
Yes, exactly. Yeah. There's so much left on the table when people make these profiles that most of my work is really like better distilling. It's this practice of taking all the different dimensions of a human life, you know, your work, your family, your intentional future, your sexuality, how you approach dating, what kind of dates you like, how you want to be approached and what kind of flirtation style you like. There's so, so many things that go into what would make someone compatible with someone else. You have apps like OkCupid giving people the opportunity to answer over 4,000 different questions about who they are and what they want. And yet when people try to distill all of that into a profile, uh, on most modern dating apps, they end up using approximately like three to 12 words as though that's going to be in any way meaningful. And usually the words aren't relevant to any of those major categories. So when you're looking at a profile and you're wondering, is this my forever person? And all it says is, you know, I like camping. It's like, okay, <laughs> cool. But like, are you even looking for a relationship? Are you even looking for someone like me? Are you in any way entertaining? What is your inner world like? Do I know anything about you? And the answer is usually no. And so people get frustrated and burned out because they just spend so much time browsing and getting nowhere. Is that a flaw of the dating app format and interface or is that a flaw of humanity in your opinion? <laughs> That's the forever question. Uh, so even on an app like OkCupid where you technically could have hundreds of words or thousands of words in your profile, the average user still doesn't do that. And so in that sense, it's a flaw of humanity because when even given the opportunity to contribute more, to share more, people don't necessarily do that or do it well. However, I think the challenge of the dating, like from the dating app perspective is like for the, the saying in the industry is for every additional thing you want a user to do. So like you want them to, you know, take an additional one screen on the phone to answer a few more questions, or you want them to add one more line about themselves you can expect a 10% user drop-off just by adding a single screen. And so let's say you wanted to get into every different dimension of someone's life and do, you know, let's say like a 40 screen uh, onboarding for a dating app, you will lose the vast majority of your users and then you will likely fail as an app because people don't have the attention span. Like we have as a society, a crumbling attention span. We've gone from a whopping like seven seconds down to like three. And so it's just really hard to keep people engaged and a lot of people are looking at phones where they get a notification every few minutes. And so if your app onboarding takes longer than, you know, one minute or four taps, people are already checking a different notification and they may completely forget about you in the time you'd hope it would have taken them to make the first profile. And so, yeah, it's a flaw both from like the user experience design and like how to keep people engaged, but it's also a flaw at the industry level of this having, and even beyond industry, like at the app, at the phone level, uh, having too many different apps on phones, giving too many different notifications and causing our attention to be pulled in a million different ways. But then it is a, like a human failing of not knowing how to describe yourself for an external audience. Like the number one thing I hear people complain about is I don't know how to describe myself on paper, or I, I, I think you'll see on most people date, not most, but like a, a plurality of dating profiles. I hate describing myself like this. I hate having to be asked to like describe myself in 400 characters or in 150 characters. People hate that and they should hate it because it's, it's miserable. <laughs> it takes a lot of art and a lot of creativity to distill so many dimensions of you, the person into a two-dimensional interface based almost solely in text for the most part. Uh, and then maybe a few photos, but the photos, you know, how many people have good photos of themselves? I think another common complaint is people oh my hate God. the photos of themselves. They can't well, find a single good photo. I find, uh, I'm, my brother's on dating apps right now. When I was looking through some profiles and occasionally we would see a girl 
And we'd basically look at my brother and be like, you're not going to like her. And he's like, well, why not? And I'm like, I'm sure she's lovely, but she's going to want to take photos every five seconds. You're going to go out for dinner. She's going to want to take a photo of the food before she has a conversation. And that's going to drive you crazy. And he's like, how do you know? She's hot. Besides, maybe she has to impress me and not take a photo for five seconds. And I'm like, but she's not going to want to. So why would you waste each other's time? And like, these are the kinds of conversations I'm having with my brother about dating. Like, she does not want to not take a photo why would you waste her time? I mean, I could be wrong, but every photo she had was very posed, lots of makeup, perfect lighting, perfect nails, perfect outfit, definitely doing the tummy suck for every single... Do you know what I mean? Like, it was very obvious. Versus when I was on dating apps before I met my current husband, we were the OkCupid people. BuzzFeed quizzes were very big back then. So taking a very long quiz to answer questions to find out your Disney princess. Like, okay, Cupid was kind of like just your next Disney princess quiz, but finding your Disney prince. That was a lot of fun. But I remember okay, Cupid had that one question, like, what are five things you can't live without? And anyone whose profile said air, water, you know, I just ignored those. I was like, if you cannot think about what is truly meaningful to you and be vulnerable enough on this profile to let me get at a glance what you're into, I don't have time to break through your shell. Thank you very much. <sighs> So this is like a common misconception on dating apps that people have where they put things that they think are like quippy or funny, but most people don't know how to write for an audience. And this is one of the challenges of the dating app world is that when you have these users who come in not really knowing what they're supposed to be doing on here, not knowing what the expected experience is, and they just get these prompts thrown at them, they don't know what to do. They kind of freeze like a deer in the headlights. And one of the things that I frequently tell people is like, when you're writing a profile, you have an audience of maybe one to three total human beings. Like, yeah, tens of thousands of people might see your profile, but who do you actually want to engage with this profile? Like treat this thing as a love letter to one person. Who's the person who's gonna happen upon this profile? Maybe they're sitting on the shitter, they swipe through, get to your profile, and suddenly they're like, wait, who is this person? Like, this is actually someone who like I'm attracted to. Their profile, it sounds like they're talking directly to me. Uh, what they're talking about is things that I also value and prioritize and care about when I'm making these decisions. And so like, if you can treat your dating profile as a love letter to your future person, then it makes it a lot easier for you to get the right messages from the right people, as opposed to making a like generically attractive profile and just trying to aggregate matches, which is its own separate uh, desire. Like some people, maybe they have a, an Instagram profile that they want to boost their uh, followership for. And so they just put in a couple attractive selfies, no relevant profile text, and just link right to their Instagram. So like, you'll see that a lot. You'll see people using apps for purposes other than dating. Uh, and for just kind of like, I think the, the most common use case for Tinder that was cited in one study was uh, confidence boosting procrastination. So seeing who likes me if I put up this photo, how many different people will like me if I put up this photo. Uh, but it's not actually people gearing their profile for the person or people that would make the difference in their life if they were to meet them. And that's, I think, a big flaw in people's approach is that they really don't recognize, like they think they need to be quote unquote attractive because they've literally never had, maybe never had the experience of meeting someone who found them attractive and they don't know what it means to like put yourself out there. But I think the flaw is that the more you try to be generically attractive, the more watered down your profile becomes, the more watered down you can be perceived as as a human. And at the end of the day, that's just kind of boring. And you're, you're essentially opening yourself up to the lowest common denominator of people who are just mindlessly searching attraction qua attraction. Like there's nothing 
there. There's nothing behind it that would make it compelling for a conversation other than like, hi, you're cute. And okay, cool. Is that all we set out to do here? Yeah, I looked over. I had a friend who showed me her dating profile and there was this, all of her photos are very attractive. And one of them is her in a bikini. And I was like, you should take that down. And she's like, why? It's a great photo. I'm like, it is a great photo. And you're going to get people who are only talking to you because of that photo. That's it. Like, I am a strong believer and you should be allowed to post your naked body on the internet and and no one should keep you from having a job. But we should also be very aware of how people's brains work. And you're going to end up with a lot of people messaging you because of that photo that you have nothing in common with because of that photo. And if you're dating to date, then it's going to just waste your time. Do you ever find people post things that where they say something they don't realize they're saying? Like I was once reading through my friend's DMs and this guy said something like, oh, I don't really love where I live. It's very ethnic. And I'm like, he's a racist. <sighs> yeah, I, I think one of the challenge here is that some people want to signal a certain thing. And I have to sometimes caution them that like what you're signaling may make sense to a certain subset of people that maybe you're trying to attract. But for the vast majority of people reading this, they are going to be so turned off that they'll literally just think you're a racist or think that you're someone who only frequents like pickup artist forums or someone who... Can you give me an example? If you are, let's say like a generic looking man and you say that you're seeking like the sacred feminine in your partner and... Exactly. Sorry, <laughs> I, made a, I made a face. I made like a horror face. The yeah. sacred feminine. So, okay. So like maybe from your perspective, you've been reading up on some authors who talk about gender relationships and like how I, I don't even know like how far I'd want to go down this path. But like the, maybe that's something that's been like on your mind recently and you're trying to learn more about it. But when you put that in your dating profile, you may be instantly coding to a wide subset of people as the kind of person who has so little self-awareness that you're putting something like that in your profile thinking that this is not going to be a red flag. <laughs> right. So uh, by say, like, I don't know what that even means, but offhand, the sacred feminine, meaning that you believe in traditional gender roles, the feminine, you know what I mean? Like, that's that's the first thing I can think about, because a frequently in complementarianist structures, like a lot of like religious structures use complementarianism, men have a role, women have a role. They're different, but equally important. And the women's role is always household chores and taking care of children. So sacred. Without it, we can't, you know, so if I read that, I will instantly assume this man wants a woman who believes in traditional gender roles and doesn't think that women should work. Yeah. And if you're doing that in New York, then it's like a lot of women in New York are going to say, first at first glance, they're going to say, oh, you're a heteropatriarchal misogynist. Great. My question for clients then, or friends, like anyone I see with this, I would say, like, are you specifically trying to attract someone who actually believes these things? Or like, are, what is your goal here? Are you just trying to turn off as many people as possible? Because sometimes that's a good strategy. You know, like if you're a polyamorous person, you may want to turn off all of the monogamists who don't have the same desires or baseline expectations at heart when you are kicking off these interactions. So like sometimes turning off a huge number of people is great. If there's 10 million people in your city on this dating app, then it really behooves you to turn off 9,999,000 people and just, you know, reduce to just the couple people you ultimately want to meet. And those are like, let the algorithms do the work from there. But yeah, if, if depending on what you put in the profile, it just can signal so strongly sometimes the thing that you may not want to have been signaling all along. Well, you just mentioned, um, you know, poly or non-monogamy versus monogamy. And I feel like there's a sense that the dating apps for the majority of people are about finding a monogamous partner. What's your experience with non-monogamous people using dating apps? As a 
like as a non-monogamous person myself or like coaching non-monogamous people or any any or all i didn't want to out you if you didn't want to be outed so you know i left it a vague one but yeah (laughs) (laughs) sure um so i think there's a couple challenges and and i literally had a conversation yesterday uh with a client about this where like they're venturing into non-monogamy for the first time and trying to make it so that the people they meet are not strictly monogamous individuals because that would be, I guess, a point of frustration for someone who's trying actively to explore non-monogamy. But they're on apps where they're not catering to a non-monogamous audience. So like Hinge is the relationship app, but it's not the non-monogamous relationship app. I've maybe seen two poly people in five years on Hinge. And so if you're going to be on an app like that, like it, you could be setting up a lot of people for disappointment if you're not very clear in your profile, like, hey, I'm polyamorous. But if you're new to poly and you're open to something monogamous, then you're in this kind of weird state of like, I I want to optimize for non-monogamous individuals, but I'm also not fully beholden to it. And so I think it's almost easier to date when you are fully, like full-blown non-monogamous, polyamorous, um, into ethical non-monogamy. Like it it makes it easier because then you can go directly to an app that caters to that. Uh, Whereas if you're trying to date with a non-traditional relational paradigm in mind and you're on a more traditional dating app then you're going to have a lot of like misfires and a lot of connections with people where you like you can connect in a meaningful way because you're humans and humans are good at doing that for the most part but at the end of the day your baseline expectations of what might come from this are misaligned because if you didn't fully disclaim that you're looking for something in which you might have multiple partners simultaneously and indefinitely then yeah, it's you're setting up uh, some misaligned expectations there. Do the non-monogamous dating apps like change? Do people switch from app to app? Because I heard that Field, F-E-E-L-D, is the one here where all the non-monogamous people are on. Is that because of the way that the app is structured or is that just where all the poly people are? Uh, so the challenge for poly people in dating is that there are rarely apps that fully serve their needs because there's a lot of wildly divergent needs within the non-monogamous community. Uh, some people are looking for forever partners and parents to their children or co-parents to their children. Some are just looking to sleep around because they don't, they're like solo polyamorists and they don't actually want a long-term committed relationship with a full we concept. They're more like, I'm my own person. I just happen to date people sometimes. So you have a wide variety of needs. And consequently, the apps that try to accommodate those needs, it, it, it can be difficult because... Uh, you have people with different expectations and desires showing up in the same place just because they're under the umbrella of non-monogamy. And so uh, I think Field is one good example. They started off as like the Tinder for threesomes, uh, and then they had to change their name. But getting started that way, they kind of attracted a lot of sex-positive people, and typically there's a huge overlap between the sex-positive community and the non-monogamous community. And so that's why a lot of poly people ended up on Field. But OkCupid... As an example, like that's still one of the best apps for non-monogamous and polyamorous people because it just gives you so much more space in terms of like character limits uh, to showcase who you are, what you want, who your other partners are. You can link to the partner profiles that you have. Um, you can talk like in depth about each of your relationships and what you're looking for. So that, that's really cool that you get that character space, which is needed to be able to showcase like the constellation of existing relationships you may already have. Uh, in terms of other apps, like a lot of the mainstream apps are really going for, you know, keeping it simple to the point, super easy and quick so they can appeal to the hundreds of thousands or 
even tens of millions of people showing up in online dating, trying to like, they have an attentional span of about like three minutes to make a profile. So it's not like you're going to be able to share that much. And so you can't really, as a non-monogamous person, it's hard to capture the full variety of like what you're looking for and what relationships are already important for you in your life in such a tiny character count. And so it's, it's hard for those apps to be as effective for non-monogamous dating. Are you familiar with FetLife? Yes, of course. So I've I've heard of people meeting potential sex partners through FetLife, but I've also heard of a lot more instances of people not finding sex partners through FetLife and people just avoiding it like the plague. It, would you consider that a dating app or or just a community platform? I, I think it's a community space for people of non-traditional sexual lifestyles uh, and relational lifestyles. So like, you will find non-monogamous people on there. You'll find kinky people on there more specifically. Um, you will find people who are kind of exploring. It, it almost feels like a live journal plus where you get like a, a lot, you, you get that kind of the darker and more private and personal elements of someone's life put more on display for community purposes, which is kind of satisfying. That's, that's what I think what draws a lot of people in is that you get really deep honesty and story. Like people put in blog posts of like their sexual fears or preferences. They'll put in photos that they would never share on any other platform. And there's something about that that makes it feel much more intimate than you'd expect on a traditional dating app. And like the, the app encourages this. And there's also meetups that you can uh, learn about and show up at uh, thanks to the discovery portion of the app. But it's not an app for individual discovery. It's not for, like a dating app is typically one where you go on to meet other individuals uh, based on usually a profile of sorts. But FetLife isn't really designed so much to like see someone, be attracted to them and say, hey, let's meet tomorrow. Uh, that would be likely very off-putting for someone unless they specifically said in their profile, hey, I'm in town for a couple hours or days, message me and we'll meet immediately. But that's so rare because the average FetLife profile, and I think a lot of users on it are, they may have had a profile for five plus years or 10 plus years even. Yeah. Uh, and that's just kind of like their little social network for the people that they have been open with about their own sexuality. And it's not really a meat market, meat market or a place where the like the, the central reason you go on is to meet someone imminently. Yeah. One of the quotes uh, from Yael, who's been on this podcast before, who's also my best friend, her big thing she'll say all the time is, nobody reads the profile. And she says it with frustration because a lot of people will put effort into their profile to specifically say, I am not looking for friendship and don't treat me like your dom or sub in your first message. And if you're looking for sex or someone to sex, find someone else. And like, you know, maybe the profile doesn't explicitly say that, but it will say, in a committed relationship with this person, looking for friendship only. And then your opening message is, hey, are you ever in Boston? I'd love for you to collar me. And I'm like, isn't collaring supposed to be this ritual between people who know you? What does that even fucking mean? But okay. This is not unique to FetLife by any stretch of the imagination. Even if your profile is the whopping 450 characters you get on a hinge, people still don't read it. Like it, it's more common <laughs> right. than not that people will do the not, not even just like the least amount of work or put in the least amount of effort which is you know likely true but I, I think a bigger challenge is that people can sometimes just be optimistic and happy-go-lucky so they see one line in the profile or one photo that really calls out to them and these apps try to make it really easy to connect with someone so like you can get on someone's hint like someone shows up on your hinge or on your tinder you know you see one photo and you can be like that is awesome and then there's already a text box ready to go. And you type, that is awesome, because you felt that in the moment. You hit send, 
you've literally not read anything else on the profile. Maybe three lines down, they said like, don't message me unless, but you never saw that because you yeah. were too busy being excited. infatuated or excited about the the one first thing that you saw. And so it's kind of important to, you know, I would say like get your deal breakers out ahead of you so that people will know not to message you. But it's also, it's just, it can be really difficult. And I've seen like, okay, Cupid profiles, for instance, where someone has a very specific thing. Like if you read my profile, put this in the message line so I know you read it. But what if their profile is like 2,000 characters and sometimes even 2,000 words? And one of those sentences within this like book of a profile happens to say, if you read, like prove to me that you read this. And you know, it, it's even people who are super diligent may not read every single word of a profile or every single section. Like maybe you've sold someone within three paragraphs and they didn't read the other 15 because they were already kind of sold. But you know, that's that's the challenge is that you don't actually know how much someone's going to engage with your profile before sending that first message. And so it's it's kind of, it's, it's I don't know, it's not that that's like a, a good or a bad because getting people to overcome their own anxieties of messaging someone, like that's an important value that a dating app can offer. Getting you to message sooner than later uh, can be effective so that you don't just sit there swiping profiles and never actually engaging with people. But on the flip side, if you engage too soon, without having actually done your research, then you end up just flooding people's inboxes and not actually contributing to more healthy or nuanced discussions of what you want. Yeah. I've been crashing a lot of my friends' dates on purpose. She invites me to crash her dates. It's been super fun. She'll be like, oh, I'm going on a date, second date, third date with this guy. Come join us for dinner. And uh, after, there's always that moment where she'll be like, what do you think? And she has me crash these dates for two reasons. One, she likes to see how they respond to her inviting a friend along. If they are weird about it, then she's like, yeah, like she she likes to gauge their reaction in those moments. But also it's nice to get your friend's opinion. And I've done this too. I've tried to invite someone to hang out and be like, what do you think of this person? Um, are they trustworthy? And uh, I think I've determined that her ideal mate is someone that she can have fun with. And no one, all these guys are so hot, but they're not very fun. So uh, there is this, uh, this is, I guess, my last question. Actually, I have two questions before we take a short break, but. I feel like there is this uh, stereotype that I also quote and say all the time, which is hot people are, are have bad personalities because they never had to work on them or hot people are bad in bed because, you know, if you're attractive, the person get like that automatically gets your foot in the door. And so you can have sex once, but like, you know, and your attractiveness might keep people distracted for a little bit. But, you know, they never need to work on anything past that because, you know, they're they're hot. There'll always be someone new to give them attention. Is this true? Am I just painting a population with a large brush? Well, it's not to say that if you're hot, then you don't have a personality. I also would say that hotness is strongly in the eyes of the beholder. And there are some characteristics of people like I'll, I'll look at someone's like someone will show me a photo lineup. This happens frequently with clients where they'll say, this is my hot photo. And I'm like, that is not a hot photo. Like that, that's a photo that's going to get you the wrong kind of attention or the kind of attention that you just told me you didn't want. Um, and so I think that what's hot, and especially if you're if you're going off the beaten path. So something that's hot for a poly person to observe could just be someone having a healthy dinner with multiple different partners in which they're all kind to each other. Like that could be very hot for a poly person to witness on a profile, but they that may not code as hot to the general population. It may code as weird or confusing. Um, and so like what's hot to you really depends on what you're looking for. When it comes to just generic attractiveness, I would say that, like, I don't know, it, it's not that it, it, it certainly will give you a boost, you'll get more matches, but it doesn't mean you'll have, like, more useful interactions. Um, 
then that's like there's the online and offline divide too. Like you can show up in a bar and like maybe people will quickly note you as like the most attractive person in the bar and then you'll get attention that way. And sure, like in that sense, like you may end up with a lot of just like ambient attention that you can then use to meet whatever needs you have without having to do much work. Um, so in that sense, yes, like generic attractiveness will give you a leg up, but it doesn't necessarily lead to more happiness. And there's plenty of people I've had as clients who are like stupidly hot and well off and like doing all the things right, but they just suck at dating because they don't really know what they're supposed to be doing. Uh, they don't know what kind of relationship they want or they don't know how to communicate their needs. And so I, I think that regardless of how attractive you are, the important things are still the important things, which is like basic communication with another person and being attentive to their needs and uh, being able to even understand what you want so that you can communicate that to someone else. My last question before we take a short break. Do we still see people using dating apps as desperate? And because I know what the, you're probably going to say to that one, uh, I have a follow-up, which is like, where do we actually see desperation if not in dating apps? Because I have a feeling you're going to say no. Nobody sees dating apps as desperate anymore. So it's hard to say. Even people who think of dating apps as a place that desperate people go, uh, they may also just get so many crap referrals from friends that they end up going there anyway. Uh, they may find that... A, a trend that I notice is that people feel terrified of asking people out in real life because of the new proliferation of dating apps where it's like you walk into a bar, you see more people on Tinder swiping than actually talking to one another at the bar because it's just, I think we have this new fear of costing people's attention, like showing up in a way where like they weren't ready to receive us or making that first approach. And I think pickup artistry over like running rampant over the last 20 years has really just devastated courtship because it's gamified the approach of you know, building a human connection and made it into something that mostly men are exploiting for their own selfish personal gain at the full expense of women and other men. Uh, so I think like they, they've kind of like tainted the well and made like just showing up in person and being kind to people feel like a, a, a weird thing now. Or like a trap. Um, or a trap. Absolutely. Um, so I, I don't personally think that dating apps show up as desperate anymore because, I mean, you have apps in which like celebrities who are like, in theory, the least desperate people, like there's an app like Raya where it attracts celebrities because it allows you to be a little bit more discreet in uh, what you say, what you do, how you show yourself, um, who actually gets accepted in the app in the first place. So it's certainly not a place where desperation goes, but there is still just as much desperation online as offline. Like there, if the desperation hasn't, if anything, like it's, Maybe dating apps early on highlighted the desperation, but it's not like it wasn't already there in our ambient surroundings. If you just go by like the number of catcalls that people get uh, walking down the street still, that really hasn't disappeared in any meaningful way just because of online dating. So like the desperation's still out there. The like foolish attempts at uh, getting someone's attention and seeming attractive to someone else, they're still out there. Uh, but I don't think the presence of dating apps has done much to make people. I guess it has made people a little less desperate overall because you can seek out attention in specific silos. If you think about like the previous silos we had, it was like you meet people at work, which is can be a little awkward. You meet them through school, which is kind of nice. Um, you and also limited because a lot of us are done school after a certain point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. And so it's very temporarily limited. Uh, you can meet people, you know, at a bookshop or library or wherever, a bar. Um, but in each of those cases, it's kind of like a catch-all. You know, maybe a, a school a bookstore might be like specific to the people going to that school. So it is, you know, a limited batch. 
but the average bar can be you know pretty much like a wild card you don't know who you're going to get and so you might come off as desperate because you don't know who you're going to be approaching whereas online because it's so intensely siloed by like i'm looking for a polyamorous person who's available now for a hookup you know like it, it's not going to code as very desperate if you've already done the work of picking the app and designing the profile that is attractive to the specific kind of person you're looking for so it's almost uh, it, it can feel like you're not so much desperate as much as just like really nuanced in your understanding of what you're looking for and how you want to get it. So, so I, I would just say, I've always said dating apps are efficient routing mechanisms for human attention. It allows you to take a need, voice it in two dimensions, maybe three, and then have the algorithms do the work of putting your stated need or desire out in front of whomever needs to receive it in order for both of you to find the interaction you want. And I don't see that as desperate. I see that as just like using technology for exactly what it can be best used for, which is saving us that sorting time and frustration of having to go to 50 bars over the course of a year and try to meet different people and never really know anything about them prior to meeting other than just your, oh, I'm kind of attracted to this person, cool. That means nothing about us having a shared desire for children or a shared understanding of what things we nerd out about. And like, yeah, there's a discovery process there to get to meet any new person, but at least when you're doing it online, you're saving yourself so much of the deal breakers because you put them up front rather than having to discover them weeks in or months in. On that note, we'll take a short break and be right back with a listener question. Hello, everybody. We really want to be able to devote our time to giving you entertaining and educational sex content. And we really don't want to have to run ads. If you like what we do, help us pay our bills so we can keep doing it. Join us at patreon.com slash sexnewswithray. We have three options for the Patreon. You can officially join the Deviants to Finding Elite for $3 US a month, and we'll shout you out on an episode. For $6.66 a month, become a fuck demon and get two bonus episodes every month on top of the shout out. I'll be reading sex news fresh off the press. You can join me twice a month for that. For $18 a month, Help us live the high life, and we'll throw you some merchandise in exchange. To support the podcast, head to patreon.com slash sexnewswithray and sign up now. And we're back. This is a question I got from Instagram. How do I get into the lifestyle when one partner is interested but not 100% comfortable with it? And I'm going to clarify for our listeners, the lifestyle, usually when people say that, they mean non-monogamy, polyamory, swinger, literally anything that is not two people or monogamy. That's the lifestyle is a coded word for that. The challenge I hear this very frequently from people who have relatively monogamous partners and they're looking to expand into non-monogamy, it's extremely difficult because you essentially have to teach someone a new way of seeing the world and hope that they're willing to see it and maybe they aren't. Uh, so in the case of like your first foray, I think the way that I recommend approaching it is doing a little bit of a breakdown of like, what is a relationship for you? What are the important parts of it? Is it the caregiving? Is it the stability of being able to plan things out months or years in advance because you trust one another and have a baseline expectation of like how this person is going to show up in your life? Is it the sexiness and the, the feelings you get from your romantic chemistry or sexual chemistry? Uh, is it your ability to just have a plus one for anything and everything in life? So the relationships can be broken down in dozens of different ways. And there's a ton of overlap between monogamous and non-monogamous relationships that 
might make people a lot less scared to consider non-monogamy when they realize that you can have you know, a 90 plus percent overlap in all of the things you consider important in relationships when you switch from monogamy to non-monogamy or vice versa, going back into a monogamous setting from a non-monogamous one. So I think that recognizing the overlaps makes it a lot easier uh, at the onset of you know taking this foray into non-monogamy, just seeing that there's a lot of commonalities. It's not this entirely foreign domain. It's simply uh, a different, there's a few different priors that you're going to start with. Uh, and so there's a little bit of unlearning involved because society has been predicated upon monogamous relationships for the last several decades, although it hasn't always been that way. And certainly uh, non-monogamy came first. <laughs> monogamy is an invention by humans that is not necessarily endemic to our species or most other species. Uh, so I think there's a little bit of unlearning and a little bit of new learnings of topics like compersion and like how to find pleasure in your partner finding their pleasure with other people. Um, and there's also a recognition that like a relationship that's already shaky uh, will not necessarily benefit from having suddenly more parties involved. So if I would compare it in that sense to a startup. If you have a startup where the co-founders already aren't getting along very well, adding another co-founder or adding a bunch of employees doesn't make that relationship better. It doesn't make the startup healthier. So like you can have a startup with multiple co-founders, especially from the onset. Sometimes they, they just get along really well. They want to build something together. That's great. Sometimes you have a startup that brings on new co-founders later. Uh, that's also great. You can have a startup with a co-founder of one or uh, two or three, you know, however many. It's just a matter of maybe if you have 20, it's not going to be like the equity splits are going to be really screwed up. So I, yeah. I think maybe thinking about it from a perspective of relationship equity would actually help when breaking into non-monogamy. Uh, if, if you think about like right now, my partner and I are share like 50-50 co-owners of this relationship. There are no other stakeholders. But the fear, if I open this up, if my part, like if I ask my partner to be able to bring other people in, you know, how much equity do they stand to lose? Uh, how much dilution should they expect over the months and years of you seeking new partners? And it's not just you know, relational equity, it's attentional equity. Like if you go on another date with someone else, you're spending that attention on another person. But while we may think of that as inherently scary, you can also think of it like if your partner goes to school, you know, they, if they go into grad school or do a PhD, suddenly their attention is going into another relationship, their relationship with school, or if they're working 80 hour weeks, their relationship with work is occupying a huge fraction of their attention. And so how much attentional equity do you need in a relationship to feel happy and stable is kind of a question you have to decide for yourselves in any dynamic. So if you want to have uh, the ability to see other people, first check in with like, what are the other existing demands on our time and attention that could be threatening? Because that's not necessarily a person that's going to be more threatening than, say, a new job or a move across the country or to a different country or going to school or picking up a new hobby. You know, some people get into like bouldering and suddenly they're doing that four times a week. You know, when are you going to make time for sex and intimacy and uh, doing cute things as a couple if you suddenly are disappearing after work for you know, six, eight hours a week? that you used to relegate to sexy times. And so any new priority can be destabilizing for a relationship. And it's just important that you have the communication baseline between you and your partner or partners so that you know the rate of redistribution of attentional equity, which is a horrible, horrible phrase. So like, romantic. That's what... Well, <laughs> yes. I think I think there's a few other, other... There's even something also that's part of this conversation that's a really simple thing, which is determining what the fear is, 
When someone's feeling uncomfortable or upset, I find that there's an anxiety or an underlying fear of some sort. And, or at least when it comes to introducing people to the lifestyle. And the fear or anxiety could be, what if you like someone more? What if you end up wanting to leave me for someone new? Those are all very standard. Or even just the fear of being sexually intimate with someone new. Like for a woman, that can be actually a physically uncomfortable situation. And even emotionally uncomfortable, having to learn to approach people again, having to get, dating is hard, you know? Um, are you looking to date? Are you just looking for sex? Are you looking to swing? And are you looking to throw this person in with threesomes? Are you expecting that you're going to walk into a swingers lounge and there's going to be a really hot third woman there for you and your wife to fucking. She's actually straight and not interested in threesomes with women, but is just doing it to please you and afraid of feeling pressured, right? Like what are, what are, what are these scenarios that your partner is concocting of what's going to happen if you do this so that you can discuss that. And, and I would suggest that if you are having that conversation to not go, don't worry, that will never happen because you don't know if that will happen or not. And you don't know what you're going to want in the moment. So just say, oh, I hear the fear. I acknowledge the fear. And knowing that you have that fear, we'll make sure to check in and communicate as we go through. And if you're not comfortable with this aspect of it, we don't need to do that part for now until we're more comfortable. Break it down into baby steps, right? Step one, you know, she's not 100% comfortable. You go to a lifestyle club, but don't have sex. You just go and explore and meet people or go to a munch that you found on FetLife with other poly people or kinky people and just talk to regular people and, you know, expose yourselves to what that lifestyle could be and look like. And I want to add that a lot of people look at the lifestyle and they're like, oh my God, it's this wonderful world of, you know, yes, there's emotional labor, but so much more opportunity for intimacy and sexy, hot sex. And forgetting that like mental illness is very much a factor in people's lives and can affect how people are interacting. Um, and, you know, that couple that seems like they're perfect and amazing probably has their own stuff that they're constantly working through and constantly communicating around. And it's not easier. It's just different. And it's not necessarily like it can be super fucking hot and sexy, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it is always super hot and sexy. And you only get the sexy from all of that work, all of those examples that Steve just gave. So that would be my one thing to add, which is determine what the fear and anxiety is and don't try and act like that will never happen because you can't promise that. Anything to add, Steve? That was great, right? I, I appreciate you giving so much more nuance to the fears, because there are many fears, and I'm, I'm glad you called attention to it. Uh, I, I think if I were to add anything, it would be that when you're trying to negotiate this with a partner, you can take the, the literal babyest steps possible. Like for one of my first poly relationships, uh, my partner and I would, we, we had a thing where like, if we were going to onboard a new partner or even a new person, we first would like look at their, in this case, okay, Cupid profile. We'd pour over it and say like, okay, I think this is the person I want. And then we'd like address any red flags that she would see if it was someone that I'm putting forth or vice versa. Um, then we'd check it, like we'd send them a message. And then if they responded, then we'd say, okay, like if a meetup were to happen, like what are the things that we want to keep on the table and off the table? And we'd negotiate that, talk through it, and then commit to it. And ultimately like the health of a relationship can be measured by like, the capacity that you have to commit to things and deliver on those commitments uh, because relationships are just kind of like, it, it's a space that you develop and design with your partner or partners uh, that allows you to feel elevated, to feel like you're you know, having more stability and structure and commitment to the things that you value in your life. And so even if it's like the littlest commitments, uh, the littlest uh, barriers that you put to bringing in that new partner, it makes it a lot easier if you keep delivering on them consistently. So 
if your partner says like, okay, I'm going to go on this date. It's going to last from this time to this time. And then I'm going to text you at this time to show you that I'm still committed to like this relationship, but I'm also like exploring this other person. Uh, if you have that happen and everything checks out and then you do some aftercare to make sure that like everything went well, um, then you can feel like, okay, we can do this again. I, I, everything seemed to go okay. And then maybe like add one more thing next time that you can open the floor to. Uh, and then you can just build it incrementally over the span of weeks, months, or even years, such that it doesn't have to be this, you know, open the door, open Pandora's box and all of the fears and insecurities rush in. Like you can, just like you said, right, keep it super simple. You can go to an event where you don't engage with people in a physical way. You simply observe and talk. Um, you can read some books together first and then talk through, like keep notes, keep a shared Google Doc on like the things that are coming up that are scary for you. Um, a partner and I also had once done a Google Doc of all of the things that we found most sexy and like we'd even show like our favorite sex scenes in like movies or literature and we'd get to know kind of like what are the things that you find sexy that maybe I don't and by knowing that I can better understand why you'd be attracted to someone in that way like you you like a man with a really fancy library in his house it's like I don't have a house so like I'm not here to I can't deliver on that but like I could appreciate it if you met a man with a nice library like I'm gonna read some of those books too uh, so there are a lot of like shared wins you can have just by being able to put your thoughts, your insecurities, your desires, your hopes all onto paper and see that together and even like comment on it within the same doc. Like it's, I'm really nerdy in that sense where I, I prefer to over communicate because it allows for so much more a sense of like stability and peace and trust. Steve. Where can people contact or follow you if they want to hear more of your wonderful wisdom? So dateworking.com is my core website. That's where I post a lot of like my thoughts and musings and ramblings. And that's where you can grab a time to chat with me on the phone uh, and learn about my coaching practice. Um, if you want to find me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, literally any social platform, it's Stephen M, as in Michael, Dean. Stephen M. Dean. And uh, Stephen is spelled the regular for... way, S-T-E-V-E-N. Oh, S-T-E-V-E-N-M-D-E-A-N, yeah. Perfect. You can join the Deviants to Finding Elite. Officially, join our communities on Patreon at patreon.com slash sexnewswithray. And of course, we're Sex News with Ray on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and submit a listener question through sharewithray.com slash podcast or email sexnewswithray at gmail.com or as usual, DM me or stop me on the street or you know, you guys know. Uh, yes, my DMs are open. Don't abuse it. Follow me at Wife Bay Ray on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok, and Razor Latex on Instagram. And OnlyFans, still very thrilling. This podcast is engineered and produced by Dave Meisner and is hosted at sexnewswithray.podbean.com. The theme music is by Blank and Brilliant. A special thank you to Blue Microphones. And photography for our logo is by Dolly Shots Photography. 